Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. When the very unexpected Arab Spring civil uprisings happened in 2010, why it was so successful in part is because the public and private entities that had been in partnership and had those relationships coordinated their actions and were able to then have a very um, successful complex operation that kept people safe. Yeah, so what is tragic about the current period that we're going through is that new types of threats that were previously unimaginable are now very real. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Dr. Diana Kincannon is a forensic psychologist, associate provost at Alliant International University, and dean of the California School of Forensic Studies. She is also a member of the ASIS International Professional Development School Safety and Security Councils. Dr. Diana Kincannon, welcome back to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I always like speaking with you. It really gets my brain going. We have a really interesting topic today, public-private partnerships. Now, I, I remember back in the day, you know, when I was a policeman, a neighborhood watch comes to mind, right? But now we have COVID-19, civil unrest, and a new paradigm is emerging. Tell us about that. Right. So what we're suggesting is that the complexity of some of what we're seeing in the current environment should have us re-envision the public-private partnership model, that these relationships are more important than ever for a couple of different reasons. Number one, the obvious mainstreaming of extremism has created a new world of conflict and disagreements. And we think this will happen, obviously, outside of the workplace and in civil unrest. And we've seen that already um, at worst, domestic violent extremism, but also in disagreements and conflict within the workplace, whether that be within four walls or in the remote workplaces. What the advantage of public-private partnerships are is that it pre-creates a network of resources that we can lean on and mobilize in the event that these conflicts occur. For example, when we have individuals in the workplaces that have differences of opinion or different experiences and need additional support than what the workplace traditionally can provide, having those relationships with county mental health resources, for example, or a local community health center becomes really important in helping us to leverage the community to support the workplace because we know things such as burnout or vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue, which some of our workforce is feeling, dealing with all of the challenges that have arisen in the COVID-19 environment, will really challenge their ability to be productive and will make them more vulnerable to engage in conflict and and in arguments and in disagreements that could really disrupt a, a workforce and potentially threaten its safety. Now, I hear what you're saying. I agree 100%. And as I envision, envision these partnerships coming together and think of some old models that, that worked very successfully, I think eventually these partnerships stopped at a certain line, right? In other words, if I was at the police department and I wanted to have a, a private company help us, they couldn't give every police officer a brand new car because that's bribery, right? But maybe you do something mm-hmm. else to help out. What's the new line here? Because we see more and more of these sort of partnerships get together where you know, company A is helping government B, and it, it just seems a little 
too cozy to me. Right. That is one of the criticisms that have traditionally followed public-private partnerships. It's, are, is there a level in which they are exploitive? I think one of the keys to any public-private partnership is setting the expectations in advance. That could be anything from information sharing. You know, some government entities, there's a limit, obviously, to what information can be shared bi-directionally. There is sometimes an expectation that the, the private sector is able to share more information than the public sector. We know that's not true with some tech companies, for example, um, where the privacy of consumers has to be respected. Um, and and we, we've seen that be litigated in, in many circumstances. So the expectations for what the partnership is going to accomplish and what the responsibilities of the individual partners are should be articulated so that there isn't confusion around that. And there are great examples of public-private partnerships that speak to how to mobilize these type of engagements effectively, whether it be the one we referenced about in Florida, where different entities have gotten together because clearly there's a climate change vulnerability in Florida. They have weather conditions with severe weather that compromise businesses' ability to, to operate. So they're looking at how to be more prepared, how do they pull their resources to be more prepared, and even potentially uh, engage so that behaviors of the population may shift, and, and even construction practices may shift, so that they become a safer community overall. And I think that those type of efforts, when planned, and are and expected work really well. And, and in that way, you can avoid some of the conflicts that you're referencing. Public-private partnerships are, are great, and we've seen many examples of them over the years, and they're fantastic. There's a change in the model. We've just discussed that, how it's going to be a little different now. It's driven by COVID, but really COVID, the, the byproduct of, of COVID is social distancing. And I don't mean that in a good way, by the way. I don't mean that from a health point of view. I mean that from a social distancing perspective, mm -hmm. where people are less connected emotionally. If I'm wearing a mask, I just look like something on a video game. I don't look like a human being. I can't read micro expressions of people to see how they're reacting to me. And, and this creates isolation. I'm wondering if, if this model, which I believe is driven by isolation in part, and, and a necessity, by the way. I'm sure there's a necessity component there. Is this, is this model going to look differently now because... It is being reimagined from a from a different spring of information and behavior. Yes, and, and those are really excellent points. And and part of this too is that I think we're gonna to have to draw upon the expertise of individuals outside our individual organizations in order to uh, mitigate some of the conflict that we're going to see within our organization, some of the threats that are internal, or we're going to see internally to our organizations, the conflict that is going to arise between employees that have, for example, risk tolerance differences. You mentioned right there, you know, we're wearing masks. We know that not everybody is. And even when mandated in the workplace, there are going to likely be differences of opinion regarding compliance with such directives. And so when we get into places where employees have those differences of opinion and have different risk tolerances, um, and or as we're seeing, starting to see now in some places, vaccine envy for those that are 
able to access vaccine or are in groups that are slated to get the vaccine earlier than others. And there's disagreement and uh, concern around those type of issues and conflict arises. We are gonna need a cross section of expertise to help in mitigating these type of complex conflicts that are going to be occurring. That's not something that security professionals alone are necessarily going to, to engage. Getting that interdisciplinary team, which may come from the professionals within the organization, but may also need to rely upon people outside of the organization so that we can bring in professionals from other entities within the community that can help us to train up the workforce so that they also know how to engage with each other when conflict arises so that we can, for example, take team members, identify team leads within the organization who can help security professionals who cannot be everywhere, obviously, at all times, who can engage when they see conflict and, and help mitigate it themselves more effectively. And that training likely will come both from security, but from those outside the workplace as well, who help engage and, and train the workforce so that their safety literacy improves, so that you know hopefully media literacy, for example, improves. That type of expertise does not live within every organization. It seems to me that, that uh, old public-private models were, were based upon some sort of altruistic outcome. Right? We're going to build a waterworks here and help people with dirty water. We're going to do neighborhood watch to help keep crime down. In other words, the beneficiary of that public-private partnership was the group in whole. I'm wondering if some of these new models based on what? Avoiding conflict, based on preventing violence, uh, based on security issues. You know, Maybe we need to partner for a, fall, a, fo a force multiplier because there's not enough police officers. Would this be a different model to you, a different paradigm? Because you're really not, you're not partnering for the benefit of the collective. You may be partnering to benefit a small selective group. There's different types of, of public-private partnerships. And I do think that the, the model that you're referencing, I think it would be called the design-bid-build model, um, which typically is initiated by governments to affect a public works or, or something of that nature. And for infra infrastructure development is a classic. Or when we are during times of war, we've done that to, to supply the military. And I think that those, those partnerships will continue. These, though, are, are definitely to uh, support, as you use the, the term force multiplier, and I think that's a really good term. I think these are akin, I think, and a classic example that came post 9-11 is the fusion centers that were developed in various communities, major metropolitan areas, which had, you know, law enforcement, federal government, local businesses that, that pulled together expertise in order to identify, you know, and, and collect information on potential threats help with pre-planned events and, and ensure or support their security, you know, fusion centers and, and lent their expertise to a significant number of active assailant incidents that occurred. And so there, these partnerships really in, in our context, in the context of safety and security, pull together the expertise for the very specific reason of 
supporting the safety of the community and the constituents that they are designed to serve. And that is overall the goal. It's contextualized to the particular industry or community that it is that these partnerships are, are embedded within. But I think overall, that is the aim, regardless of what the partnership is. Doctor, break down for us how this flows, how it works. If I'm thinking of setting this up, you know, give me some pointers on how I start and, and lay out the process for us. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, I think, because I think the success of this is about the intentionality. One of the things that I think is very important is not to uh, underestimate the time. This is about relationships and relationships have to be cultivated. So there needs to be time and commitment and the it very strategically picking potential partners, deciding what the collective need is, and then investing in those relationships. So determining what the goal of the partnership is, who the members should be, who the appropriate individuals in the specific concerns should be, what level of of individual within the agency with whom one is connecting. And it, it actually doesn't matter. It could be, you know, executive level, the C-suite individuals, and I've seen partnerships that have been with C-suite individuals. I've also seen partnerships where it has been between frontline staff who have gotten together and who are the liaisons for their organizations and agencies, depending upon what the goal is and who the, the actual uh, individuals they're trying to protect are. And so like in, in a retail establishment, for example, and that has worked quite well as well. Deciding on what the aim is, deciding on, upon the frequency of meetings and the, the point of those meetings, deciding on the role of each of the members, what they're going to bring, as we talked about earlier, deciding upon what information will be shared, how it will be shared, how that communication will function. And if there is an event in a time of crisis, what crises are anticipated, or, you know, the classic hazard vulnerability analysis, and how will the partnership function in the time of crisis? You know, in the article, we, we reference OSAC, and we had talked to a senior official that was involved in OSAC, and OSAC being the Overseas Security Advisory Council for anyone who might not be aware of that. And OSAC was um, very active during the Arab Spring and was actually, it's a public-private partnership that was actually credited with the safe evacuation of the more than 8,000 American diplomats and their family that were engaged overseas when the very unexpected Arab Spring civil uprisings happened in 2010. And why it was so successful in part is because the public and private entities that had been in partnership and had those relationships coordinated their actions. And so they did not duplicate efforts. They did not go after the same resources. They coordinated transportation and were able to then have a very um, successful complex operation that kept people safe. And that was leaning into a partnership that they had already established. Speak to me about some pitfalls you see if this is not set up properly or if it's set up with, let's just say, not the right intention. 
one thing is that it, the partnership has to be contextualized. It has to mean something to the partners. It, otherwise, it's just a waste of time, another meeting, um, something that is not useful. And so I think that is one pitfall. There has to be a clear understanding on the part of the, the participants that this is meaningful, that there is a need for mutual aid or mutual participation. And that commitment uh, needs to be something that, that is honored by all of those that are engaged. So I think that is one piece of it. The, you know, the other is, again, that clear communication and clear expectation for what occurs when, so that there's no misunderstanding as to, for example, as we've talked about the limitations of information sharing um, and those, those type of um, the, the level of engagement and, and the rules of engagement, if you will, between the partners also think that there needs to be that that commitment to continuity and an understanding that relationships take time and the partnership may evolve over time and there should be an expectation that that iteration process will in fact occur and that's actually a good thing because it shows that the partnership is being responsive to the needs of the partners which won't always be anticipated at the time the partnership is established. Dr. Diana Kincannon, always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend. I always learn something, and that's the place to be in life. So thanks again for coming on Security Management Highlights. Look forward to our next conversation. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Dr. Joshua Sinai is a professor of practice in counterterrorism studies at Capital Technology University in Maryland. He is also a consultant to Touchstone Global and author of Active Shooter, A Handbook on Prevention. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you very much. It's real privilege to be on, on, your, on your show. What exactly is a tall building? Give me an operational definition. Yeah, so the, um, there are three basic types of tall buildings. There are the um, high-rise buildings, which are about seven floors. A skyscraper is a building of at least 40 to 50 stories. And then um, a tower building would be uh, 50 floors and above. So, for example, in, in Manhattan, I think there's an apartment building that's, that's about a 100 stories tall, which, which, which is quite amazing. And, and so, for, for example, um, on Christmas Day, when the bombing took place in downtown Nashville, an AT&T facility was bombed. And I looked it up, and it, it was about uh, 10 stories tall. So that would qualify as a tall building. Or for example, a, um, a hotel that might be, let's say, 15 stories might be attached to a tower. For example, the Taj Mahal Hotel in Mumbai, India, which was attacked by um, LET terrorists in um, 2008. So then the hotel and the tower would, would qualify as a tall building. Dr. Joshua, let's talk about yeah. the type of threat actors. Who is going after these buildings? What type of people are specifically focusing on tall buildings? I noticed that there are actually five types of uh, threat actors. There are the terrorists who seek to attack tall buildings in order to cause massive damage and generate massive publicity for their cause. For example, Al-Qaeda, which you know, have attempted to 
bomb the um, World Trade Towers in um, 93, but, but had failed to do so. So they came back in on, on 9-11 to, to destroy the two towers. So a, a, a terrorist group would be the first threat actor. A second one would be someone who works in a tall building and engages in what's called workplace violence type three, worker on worker or ex-worker on worker. So they will attempt to attack their co-workers at, at a um, tall building. And then the third type would be, uh, let's say, um, a faction in, in, in a street demonstration that veers off and engages in vandalism against a tall building's ground floor. For example, if there are retail shops there, or they might attempt to break into a tall building. And this happened at one of the uh, street demonstrations last summer. And then a fourth type would be an insider at an office in, in a tall building um, might attempt to sabotage the IT uh, system in, 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 in the office. So all, all these different types of threat actors need to be considered by a tall building security department. Now, what, what got you interested in this topic? Because it is a very specific vertical market. Vertical, I'm, I'm not making it funny there, but, but you know what I'm yes. saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've been working on these types of threat actors for, for a very long time. Terrorists, active shooters, those engaged in workplace violence and insiders. From uh, 2016 to 2018, I worked as a contractor at the um, Federal Protective Services, FPS. uh, I supported their training division. And that exposed me to the needs of security departments in in, in buildings. So I began to do some research on it. And I came up with at least 10 significant incidents that have occurred over the years uh, against tall buildings or, or inside tall buildings. For example, the October 2017 mass shooting at, in, in Las Vegas was an example of where a tall building is used to carry out a mass shooting attack against a, um, an, an outdoor concert below. So there are different types of threats that, that confront tall buildings. And, 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 and it occurred to me that this was a very, very interesting subject to uh, write about. Here's some challenges I see. Uh, and I had the same challenge working in an, in an almost high-rise building at the studios. Prolonged response. You know, the, that broadcast building I, I was responsible for was complex, five stories, mazes of hallways. You didn't know where you were going. Anybody that was not working in that building all day long would never be able to find an active shooter or a problem inside the building. So law enforcement would be highly delayed. Talk to us about the pro- prolonged response and, and how this really impacts uh, your security plan. Yes, so if, if uh, let's say, a workplace violence attack occurs on the 20th floor of of a building, um, how does the um, building security respond to it? That's a huge problem. So so the security department has to be, has to have its security uh, emergency response plan coordinated with every tenant in in the building. So that's why it's very important for security departments to regularly exercise their tenants in, in their um, emergency response planning. So that, that, that's one of the most important mitigation, mitigating measures that the security department has to implement 
in, in, in every building. Oh, and, and, and that's why it's very important for every security department to be aware of the response cycle, which begins with awareness of the threat, preparation to respond to the threat, which would involve regularly exercising the tenants, responding to the threat by having uh, personnel available to respond almost instantaneously to any type of threat that might challenge building, and then to have a recovery plan for that day, for uh, several days following the attack, and then for uh, to implement a continuity of operations. So you have to have all of these four types of measures in place at, at all times. Let's talk a little bit more about mitigation. I have a wild imagination, and I got to tell you, when I see a big building, I go, drone attack, mob looting of stores on the lower levels, pathogens being introduced in the air conditioning system. I mean, this is all stuff I used to think about, you know, as really worst case scenario. We didn't think it would ever happen 15 years ago. But you know what? Nowadays, these are real things. What can we do to mitigate some of these, let's just call them really high-level threats? Yeah, so what is tragic about the current period that we're going through is that new types of threats that were previously unimaginable are now very real. For example, the COVID-19 pandemic has meant that every building now has to have a mitigation plan in place to ensure that no employees or visitors are infected with COVID-19, which vastly complicates the security planning of um, security departments. So they have to have staff in place on, on, on the ground floor and um, in front of every elevator to ensure that no one who's infected is able to enter the building. But what if malicious actors find a way to evade detection? So this, this is a huge concern to security departments. And then the other threat is the, the use of weaponized drones to attack a tall building from anywhere in, 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 in the um, immediate environment. So how, how do you protect against that? Yeah, so the, these are new types of threats that, that I'm sure are keeping security departments up all night. So in my limited experience, the way I handled my five-story broadcast facility is I had I had an exterior perimeter for the building. I had access control measures in place. Everything was high tech, but then I put an individual security on each floor. Is this? I know that doesn't sound practical with a hundred-story building, but could that be a way to handle some of this? In other words, we're trying to create the choke point at the bottom, not let anybody get in. But oftentimes, once you get past the checkpoint at the bottom of the building. People travel freely up and down, as we've seen in many things like active shooter cases or things like that. So any new models or new thinking on how to handle these uh, high-rise levels? Every tenant should have a designated official who's responsible for security and for being in continuous contact with the building security department. And they should also have, should have all sorts of surveillance equipment in place on every floor and, and throughout floors, in, in addition to having um, designated exits that can be used to evacuate the, the, uh, the tenant safely. Now, how do and, we coordinate that with headquarters? In other words, if, if, I'm, if I got a security contract for the high rise and uh, the law firm on floors 20 to 25 have their own security, 
how, how can I tie all that together so we have kind of one comprehensive system? Right, so the, that's why it's very important for all the individuals and units that are responsible for security to meet on a regular basis, whether in person or via video conferencing, and to have, uh, for example, a mega dashboard in place that can manage uh, alerts that come in. And all of this should be based on a risk management approach, which consists of uh, risk as a function of threat plus vulnerability plus consequence. And each one of these can be broken down. Everyone should be trained in putting together a risk management approach for their um, facility and to have everyone um, working from the same spreadsheet. So continuous coordination is key. And also what, what is important is to put together a threat assessment team for each of these buildings and to also to be able to monitor different types of threats that might challenge a building. So there has to be a monitoring of threats in, in social media and also to also to coordinate this with local law enforcement so that if an incident occurs, law enforcement will know how to enter a building and also have a key to the building and, and to all the offices. So it's a huge undertaking for security departments. So, for example, it would be interesting to find out what kind of a security infrastructure is in place in in the Empire State Building or other um, prominent tall buildings and to be able to use them as best practices for other facilities. It sounds like the ESRM, Enterprise Security Risk Management Model, is really very well suited for a high-rise because of all the different layers and tenants and separate security processes going on at the same time. Yes, and, and but it also has to be operationalized in a user-friendly, um, quantifiable way, which I, and I, I'm not sure if, if it is. In, in order to uh, generate a risk score that security departments can work with and, and also to so that security departments show their risks stored, scored to insurance companies that could then manage their risk premiums in, 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 a, in a way that would help to lower their insurance rates if they can demonstrate due diligence. And I'm sure this, this is done by many security departments at tall buildings, but it would be interesting to study this in order to come up with best practices that can be applied nationwide to, to, to all such buildings. Dr. Joshua Sinai, we're speaking about tall building security. Dr. Joshua, thanks for your insight, really good information, and we have a little ways to go, uh, but I think, I think we're getting there. I think, I think your article and what we're speaking about is gonna raise some awareness. Thank you for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you very much, and, and I hope that uh, all of this leads to further interest in, in this very interesting and challenging security area.